everybody. I said, hey, everybody. That was really like kind of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. That was really... Hi, church. My name is Eric. Uh, welcome to E3. Um, happy Valentine's Day. I trust you guys have all got Valentine's cards for me. No? Oh, well. Um, it's Valentine's Day. Guys, don't let me down. Eyes on you guys. Um, welcome to E3. It's, it's a great, great day. I, I think it is getting warmer. It's a beautiful day outside. I'm able to wear a sweater. That always makes me happy. Uh, what I want to do is kind of start off with a little bit of a quiz. And so what I want to do is see by the show of hands if you think we are flying through the Gospel of Mark at breakneck speed. So only a couple of you. We have heard that from you. And let me tell you, if you are one of the people who are like, man, this is like drinking from a fire hose every Sunday. <laughs> let me tell you, I think you're right. I'm on your side. In fact, Pastor Mark and I were talking this week, and we we're like, you know what? Each of these Sundays really feels like you could break it up into three separate sermons. I mean, there is just flat out a lot going on in this story. And part of me is kind of bummed out that we have to go through so fast through it because I really wish we could sit and rest in some of this stuff. But what we are trying to do is kind of stay on track, stay in the rhythm of this story so that we can reach kind of Easter and kind of the week before Easter, we call it Holy Week, at the same time that the story in the gospel is reaching it. So we are rushing in some areas in order to be able to slow down in others. So we hope that when we get to Holy Week, uh, we will be able to kind of deliberately walk through the depth and the intensity of this story in a way that it really deserves and in a way that will be impactful uh, for you. And sort of in light of that, before I, I talk too much more, I want to kind of draw you guys' attention to something else that's, that's going on um, not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday. Um, Lent, the season of Lent, is the 40 days that leads up to Easter. And traditionally, it's been a time in the church where we really lean into the scripture where Jesus says you're supposed to deny yourself. If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and the church has kind of taken that as like we really need to do that. So Lent kind of grew out of this sense of like, well, up to Jesus' death, we really need to go through a season of thinking about that death and reflecting on it and denying ourselves and taking up our cross. So Lent has been a season of uh, usually a fasting of some kind, some kind of denial of, of maybe things in your life that you take for granted. And E3, uh, we're going to celebrate, if, if, it's, if celebrate is the right word, we're going to celebrate that season. Now, um, we just figured out that we're actually off a week. So our Lent at E3 is going to be 33 days, not 40, um, because it's supposed to start on February 17th. But we're going to start it on February 24th. And there are two gatherings that day that we really would invite you guys to be a part of. We're going to have a gathering at 7 a.m., Wednesday morning, and it's just going to be called an Ash Wednesday gathering. If you've ever been around people who have uh, kind of participated in this, you'll see them with just kind of a, a dark mark. You know, uh, Catholic traditions do this in some older churches. It's called the administering of the ashes, which we have a chance to identify with Jesus' death. And uh, I mean, I remember seeing people, and I was always like, dude, you got a little 
You got a little something, something there. But it's intentional. And uh, so if you come here at 7 a.m. on February 24th, we're just going to do a short little gathering where we talk about kind of what the significance of it is and invite you guys to just participate. And it'll be like 20, 30 minutes max. So you'll be able to get to work uh, on time. And then that evening, we're going to do an owner's worship gathering where we're going to talk about the, the season coming up and maybe give you guys some ideas of ways that you can really maybe lean into uh, this season coming up. So we're really excited about those. Mark, they're in the fridge fold. Mark them on your calendars. We'd love to share those with you guys. And uh, if you guys would join me in prayer, I'd like to kind of pray because as usual, we have a whole lot of material to get through today. So Heavenly Father, we, I thank you and we thank you for your faithfulness. And the words of that, that song, You Never Let Go, uh, just echo really clearly for me this morning, God. For the faithfulness and, uh, of, of how you care for us, the faithfulness of your story, the faithfulness of your work in the world. And God, I pray that you would stay with us now. I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would compel us to look at you and to see you in the ways that you want to be seen by us, God. Strip away all our misconceptions and become, uh, become as real to us as, as, as we are able to see. Stay with us now and, and teach us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Well, we are looking at Mark 5 today, and Mark 5 is this um, awesome series of healings. And so what we're going to do is kind of take a look at each of these healings and the unique flavors of them and kind of what Jesus might be doing and what the gospel writer Mark might be telling us about what Jesus is doing. And then also I want to take a look a little bit at maybe something, an idea, a thought that is unifying these, he- these healings that seem to be somewhat uh, disparate and, and random. So we're going to start off by just reading the scriptures. And um, I'm going to start off in chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to read a little bit, and then we're just going to talk about it. So you guys can follow along in your Bibles. They'll also be up on their side screens. So they, that's Jesus and his disciples, arrived at the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out from a cemetery to meet him. This man lived among the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him. Other translations say he immediately ran to meet him. And bowed low before him with a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And in the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the spirit, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, What is your name? The man replied, or the demon replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. Okay. So what's going on here? Um, obviously, Jesus is exercising a demon. We, all, we know that. We can hear that from the story. 
But I believe uh, that there are some other kind of interesting currents going on if we, if we pause and if we listen a little bit. See, Jesus is in this region of the Gerasenes and other translations, other people call it, I think, call it the Gadarenes. And there's some question amongst archaeologists and his, his, uh, historians, yes, historians, of where this actually is. There's some locations that they kind of advocate, you know, this, one, this is close enough to the lake, this one's far enough away. But basically everybody agrees that it is across the lake from where Jesus' ministry has been up until this point. And that is significant, why? It's significant because this is not Jewish territory. So up until this point in the story, Jesus' ministry has all taken place amongst his people, amongst Israel, amongst the Jews. And then all of a sudden, he takes a trip across the lake to Gentile territory. Not just Gentile territory. He walks in to what is probably the most unclean situation imaginable to a Jew. Remember, Jesus is Jewish. Now, to a Jew, cemeteries were off-limits places because they contained corpses, and you were not supposed to be in contact with a corpse as a Jew. Moreover, we're told that the man is obviously possessed by a very evil spirit. Uh, Two or three, we also know that just around the corner in this story, there's going to be a herd of swine. And pigs... uh, even though I really like bacon and ham and sausage, uh, to a Jew, pigs were nothing to be associated with. It was like the most unclean animal that you could be. So this is like, wow, Jesus is going into a really, really unclean, outside-of-the-box situation. And I think there's a reason for it. And to really unpack the reason... You kind of need to take a step back, kind of need to take a step up and look at what's going on. You see, God always had a plan for the whole world. God's movement in history started with the Jewish people. But there was always a plan for the whole world. There was always a plan to bring the Gentiles in. And we can see it all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, in in Genesis 12, where God calls a guy named Abram, who is the first Jewish guy, and God finds this guy and calls him and says this to him. The Lord had said to Abram, Genesis 12, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Not all the Jewish families. So even in the very beginning of God's story, God is saying, I have a plan for the whole world. All the families of the world, Abram, through you, through Israel. And this continues on. Isaiah writes a lot about this. Isaiah basically says, someday God's word, God's salvation is going to go through, out from Israel to the whole world. So what's significant here? That Jesus, God's salvation, has left Israel and has gone to the Gentiles for the first time. And so if you knew your story as a Jew, you would read this and go, ooh, it must be happening. It's happening. Like 
God said that one day he's going to bless all the world through Abraham. And Jesus is now going out into all the world. And so he encounters this demon. And furthermore, to drive home the fact of like how anti-Jewish the situation is, Jew, uh, Israel was an occupied territory at the time, if you know your history. It was occupied by an empire. Which empire was it? Anybody know their history? It was the Roman Empire. What's the demon's name? What's the basic fighting force of the Roman Empire called? The Roman Legion. And so there's this kind of like moment you're like, hmm, what's going on here? I mean, Jesus is absolutely confronting evil. But I almost feel like there's another message being communicated here where Jesus is also saying, hey, Rome, I know what your armies are called. I know what your political power is called. And I will confront it. So it's Jesus versus evil, Jesus versus the legion. Let's see who wins. The demons ask Jesus, don't cast us into someplace far away. Eventually they beg to be sent into a herd of pigs. Now, demons in that age were not considered to be killed when they were exorcised. They were cast out. Even scripture says, you know, scripture seldom says, if ever, that Jesus killed a demon. He cast it out, sends it someplace else. So Jesus confronts the legion. He confronts the demon. He sends the demon into a herd of pigs. And then the pigs go crazy and run off a cliff into the ocean and drown. And it's possible that a link is made that if the pigs drown, then the demons drown. So Jesus put it plainly, has just scored a decisive victory. He didn't just cast the demons out. He didn't just make the legion go somewhere else. The legion is killed, dead, gone. And to a Jew in that time, reading that story would be like, yes, he's going to conquer evil, but yes, he has something to say about the political powers of the world too, where Jesus is saying, your political powers, your armies are not going to stand up to me. I will decisively eliminate it. But we're not done yet. So Jesus has been over here in Gentile territory. Now he comes back. So we're gonna pick up the story again because the word just doesn't come to the Gentiles. It still comes to the Jews as well. Jesus got into the boat again, verse 21, and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, my little daughter is dying, he said. Come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. So God's salvation, God's word, comes back to the Jews. And in fact, actually comes back to a spiritual leader in the community. Jesus is an equal opportunity guy. This man walks up, falls at his feet, which would have been pretty, uh, pretty out there for a man of his stature. And says, come, my daughter's dying. And then something somewhat unexpected happens. Mark sort of interrupts the story. And if you read the gospel of Mark a lot, you'll notice that this is something that happens a lot in Mark's gospel, where there will be a story that starts, and then it's interrupted by another story, and then the story is picked up again. 
And so what just happens is that Jesus is, we're all supposed to believe that Jesus is now going to go with this man whose daughter is dying, when all of a sudden he's interrupted by something that is just a mind-blowing episode. So Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, crowded around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. In the ancient world, doctors were not looked upon favorably. So this is uh, kind of normal for that culture. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped, and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. And Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out for him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? And his disciples said to him, rightly so, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? I guess one time where like the disciples were like, Jesus, you, Jesus, you're crazy. Like who touched you? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. All right, so what just happened? Again, we have another healing, not hard to understand. But there's something that is so much more amazing and so much more subtle that is going on in this story. What this woman was suffering from cut her off from her community. She was considered unclean by the law, perpetually. And it's not like that just means she had to stay at home and could only check Facebook. Being cut off from the community means you are cut off from God's plan. You are cut off from God's purposes. You are cut off from salvation. You are no longer sort of a part of God's work in the world if you are cut off from God's people. So she's ostracized. She is separate. She is alone. She is fearful of what is going on in her life. And furthermore, Everything this woman touches, according to the law, was also unclean. She sits in a chair. No man or other person sits in that chair unless it is officially cleaned. She touches you. Now you are unclean. So she sits at the back of the crowd in her fear, in her loneliness, and she sees this man, Jesus, and she says, maybe Maybe, maybe. And so she pushes through the crowd, defiling every single person that she comes into contact with. All, at the ex- all of this expense because she believes that maybe this man will heal her. The desperation that drove her forward blows my mind. I, over and over again in my journal, this is one of the most rocking stories to me. Year after year, I'll, I'll see in my journal, would I have done that? Would I have risked it all 
Because you notice there's another little sentence in the, in the, in the passage that Jesus kind of makes her tell what she just did in front of the whole crowd. In a sense, like you wish that Jesus would have kept it quiet and said, we'll talk about this later, you and me one-on-one. But Jesus says, no, you tell me what you just did. And there's a piece of you like, really, Jesus? But there's still something else going on. So you see, Jesus would have been wearing something like this. This is a prayer shawl, a Jewish prayer shawl. And uh, he, would have, he would have worn this because he was a good Jew. He would have worn this because it was part of the law. And uh, there's some elements of the prayer shawl that are always uh, sort of prescribed by Scripture. And uh, these little things here are called tzitzit. Everyone say that word, tzitzit. Say it. Isn't that fun? Say it again. It should just put a smile on your face. It comes out of the book of Numbers. I want to read this. God has given instructions to Moses, and he says, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. Throughout the generations to come, you must make tassels for the hems of your clothing and attach them with a blue cord. Blue ink got to be too expensive, so eventually a lot of them stopped using blue and used white only. When you see the tassels, the tzitzit, You will remember and obey all the commands of the Lord instead of following your own desires and defiling yourselves as you are prone to do. The tassels will help you remember that you must obey all my commands and be holy to your God. Um, If you counted the knots in all of these, there should be um, 613 of them, one for each law, one for each piece of the law. But that's not the important thing. God tells you you're supposed to attach your tzitzit to the corners of your robe. Now, the corner or the border of your shawl, of your robe, is called the kanaf. Everyone say kanaf. Now, over the years, that word, as words sometimes do, began to take on another meaning. And it began to signify, began to mean wings. And can you see, like, how or why? Because, like, if you you held it up like this, it kind of looks like wings. So the kanaf began to mean wings. And in like Psalm 91, where the writer says, I take refuge in the shadow of your, he says, I take shadows, I take refuge in the shadows of your kanaf. So fast forward many, many more years. Israel, if you remember the story, uh, experiences exile. They're conquered They're taken away from the land that God had promised them. The temple is destroyed. And over the years, this hunger begins to grow for the Messiah who is going to come and restore their fortunes, restore uh, their position in the world. And so prophets began to write about the Messiah. Isaiah writes about him. Other prophets write about him. And a guy named Malachi writes the last book of the, of the Old Testament. This book is very, very important to the gospel of Mark. It's very, very important to Jesus. And he writes this in, the, in the chapter four. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, which is the name for the Messiah, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves, led out to pasture. So when Messiah comes, he will come 
with healing in his kanaf. So when the woman sees Jesus, she doesn't grasp his robe. She doesn't grasp his blue jeans. She doesn't grasp some random garment. She grasps his kanaf because she believes that when the Messiah comes, there will be healing in it. So when Jesus so urgently wants to know, hey, who touched me? Who touched me? I want to know. I felt this power go out from me. He doesn't only want to know, hey, who just got healed? He wants to know who just called me Messiah. Who just confessed their faith. But we're still not done because Jairus is standing by. And can you imagine what is going through his mind right now? Jesus, this is awesome. Jesus, this is amazing. Jesus, Jesus, come, come, please, Jesus. Until eventually the, the worst news that probably anybody could ever hear is when someone runs up and says, don't bother, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. Jesus is not necessary. Jesus overheard them say this to Jairus and he said, don't, don't be afraid. Just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John. Now these are kind of three of the 12 that are singled out. Uh, They do things with Jesus that the others don't. They make really bad mistakes that the others don't. This is kind of an inner circle. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. and He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. Now, he is speaking metaphorically. The child is dead. The crowd laughed at him, which I think would be horribly to be immortalized in Scripture as the group of people that laughed at Jesus. But he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying and holding her hand, which means he is touching a corpse. Again, he said to her, Talitha kom, which is Aramaic. And I may just be the only geek who gets this, but like Mark loves to preserve the original language of Jesus. And whenever he says something like this, there is a sense of like, he wanted us to know that because that's exactly what Jesus said, which just I think is so cool to read the actual words, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around and they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Well, yeah. (laughs) Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. You know why that last part's in there? Because Mark, the gospel writer, wants you to know, and Jesus wants you to know, you are not dreaming. She's alive. This is not a ghost. Ghosts don't eat. Figments of imagination don't eat. 
She is a human, and she's 12, which means she wants to eat. So those are the stories. You know, and, and, and you see Jesus crossing these borders uh, physically into Gentile territory, um, spiritually into confronting demons, and uh, in physically confronting the, the borderline of death and basically saying it doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. And one of the questions that we've been asking through this entire series is who is Jesus? Well, if we just look at this chapter, we say, well, yes, Jesus is a healer. He's healing people spiritually. He's healing them physically. He's healing them emotionally. Absolutely. But here's the deal. Troubling thought is that Jesus is not the only healer in the ancient world. He's not the only healer in the Bible. Other people miraculously heal people in the Bible. Jesus is not the only exorcist in the ancient world. Again, other people in the Bible do it. In fact, Jesus is not the only person in the Bible to raise somebody from the dead. So what I want to say to you or suggest to you is to not get too focused on the fact that Jesus heals. And we're going to talk about that for just a mo- in just a moment. You see, I think sometimes we look at the, the, the healing stories and there's something about us that might even be a little bit immature, uh, insecure about who Jesus is. And so we read the stories and we almost read them to go like, you see that Jesus? Like we're on his team. That's our guy. And see all those cool things he did? That's our guy. And we do that almost to sort of make ourselves like feel good. Like he does these things. And he does, he does, he does, he does, he does. But even the other gospel writers throw this word into the stories when Jesus heals. And he said, and the gospel writer, especially in John, says, these healings are signs. They're signs. They're signs. It's such a little word. But it can mean so much. You see, a sign is not the thing. When you see a sign, it means you're going to a thing, but the sign is not the thing. See, if I'm going to Walt Disney World and I pull over in the side of the road when the sign says, hey, Walt Disney World, four miles away, and I pull over and I get the kids out of the car and I'm like, look at this thing. The sign points to the thing. You're not supposed to stop at the sign. You don't pull over to the side of the road and spend your vacation money on the corner of the Florida Turnpike. You go to the thing. Another way to think of it is that these are invitations that Jesus is trying to give. The sign tells you that something's going on. Well, so does an invitation. You see, this is an invitation to a wedding. It's actually a save the date, but it's close enough. Uh, to a woman in, for a woman in our community named Kate Phillips, uh, who's getting married later this spring. And uh, whenever we get a wedding invitation, as probably a lot of people do, we'll tack it up on our refrigerator so we know when the date is and we can keep these people in our thoughts. But is the invitation the thing? No. 
What's the invitation do? It tells you that something is going on, and it's usually a party. That's what Jesus' healings are doing. They're not only just to tell you how powerful he is, but remember the woman who could no longer experience community, who thought she was on the outside of what God's plan was. Jesus' healings restore people to the work of God. So Jesus goes around and he goes to Gentile territory and he goes to people with darkness in their soul who, uh, who are considered unclean, who are considered outside of God's purposes. And he says, guess what? Here's an invitation because there's a party going on and you're invited. In fact, everybody who sees this, you're invited too. And then he comes back across the lake And he sees a woman who is perpetually on the outside of God's community, who can't be friends with people, who thinks God has no purpose for me. And he goes, guess what? Here's an invitation. There's a party going on and you're invited. Come. And everybody who saw that, you can come too. He goes to somebody who has no hope, who's just experienced the darkest crisis of faith they could ever experience. And he goes, guess what? There's a party going on. Not even death is going to stop it. And everybody who sees this, you can come too. And so when we look at the second question that we've been asking is how do we follow Jesus? You know how you follow Jesus? You don't stop at the signs. You don't put the invitation on the wall and go, isn't that an awesome invitation? I bet it's going to be an awesome party. You come to the party. Jesus is the host with the most. And you can say amen to that. I won't mind. So what I, I I just want us to stand up and we're going to, sing some songs because sometimes song does what words don't. Sometimes melodies go places that words don't. And we're gonna sing melodies and words that tell us of who our God is. And if you have hesitated at the sign, if you have pulled over to the side of the road, if you have put the invitation on the wall, it's time for you to take it down and go, what, I gotta find the party because it is a party, and all are welcome. You know, uh, I, I got a, uh, we received an, an invitation around October or November uh, in my house, and it was um, to my sister's, older sister's wedding. And uh, not to belabor the point, but I'd, if I only would have stuck that invitation on the wall, if we wouldn't have taken the next step just to say, I'm coming to the party. I never would have gotten to dance with my daughter. And fathers, you know how those dances don't, don't stay around forever with your little girls. I never would have got to see my son do the thriller dance. I never would have seen my wife dressed up and she was smoking hot that night. I never would have gotten to see my sister who had raised five children on her own for the past five to seven years enter into a grace-filled relationship with an awesome man. 
I never would have seen my father who suffered a massive stroke get up and dance with his daughter and with his wife the way he danced 15, 20 years ago. Guys, the party is awesome. And the invitations are thrown out all over the world. Don't turn them into furniture. Come to the party. Um, if you guys would, would bow your heads, I just want to pray for you all. And, uh, and we'll go out praising God with our hands. Father, uh, you issue invitation after invitation and sign after sign. Some of them amazing and easy to see. Some of them subtle in the conversation between friends or family. God, may we be a people who run, take the invitations and run with them all the way home, all the way into the party. And God, may we also be people who are seeking to give the invitation and tell our friends there is a party going on and you, no matter how far you think you are, that there is a God in heaven and a king on the earth and he wants you to come in. Send us out, Lord, to be your people, to be your hands, your feet, your beating heart in this world. We love you, God. We declare your sovereignty over this whole place. Amen and amen. You guys have a great day.